You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. It's a joy to be with you to open God's Word and to think tonight about praying God's Word. Uh, before we do that, I want to say thank you to my brother Matt. Um, I, I love Matt Boswell deeply. I mean, he's just like Texas cool, right? Just very sort of self-assured and unflappable and just Texas, right? And uh, just love the brother, love the way he leads worship and am grateful for you, brother. Uh, get to share the platform with my brother, Lig Duncan. He's not Texas, he's just Presbyterian, you know. <laughs> just dapper and thorough and I, I appreciate it, brother, that, that walk through the scripture on the public reading of God's Word, and if that wasn't enough, that walked through the history of church liturgy. Um, and just so very thorough, I, I, I was freshly convicted to renew my commitment to the public reading of Scripture as I listened to you the other night. So thank you for serving us. And uh, I understand he had to catch a plane, but I got a real man crush on Tony Marita. <laughs> I first met Tony in my opening weeks, really, in the, Grand, in the Cayman Islands when I was the new pastor at the First Baptist Church of Grand Cayman. There was a young woman. We had a church school. There was a young woman on staff at the school who says, I'm really excited. Spiritual Emphasis Week is coming up, and there's a guy who is the pastor of the church I grew up in. He wasn't, she, he wasn't my pastor, but, uh, you know, it's a church that I grew up in. He's going to come down for a week and lead Spiritual Emphasis Week, and um, she said, would you come? Of course, I'm Reformed, so I don't trust anybody theologically, right? So... <laughs> So I was like, I don't know. I snuck into the balcony, and the brother walks up to the pulpit. Now, this is an elementary school, right? These are like second graders. And he he walks up to the pulpit, opens the Bible, that deep voice. He says, turn into your Bibles to Philippians. That brother took second graders and did an expositional series through Philippians. I'm like, that's my dude right there. That's my dude right there. So I've loved Tony ever since, man. So it's an honor, and the biggest honor is to be with you. My brothers and sisters in the Lord, we're family, and uh, to have this time with our Father at his table as he spreads the feast of his word is a great privilege, and so let's ask him for help this morning, this, tonight. Let's pray. Father, we plead with you to speak tonight by your word and your spirit Speak to us. Lord, and give us ears to hear. Press out the distraction. Quiet the troubled mind. Settle our hearts. And stir in us faith so that your word heard would be mixed with faith. And we would be changed. Lord, your word is sweeter than honey in a honeycomb. It's like gold purified seven times in the furnace. Indeed, your word is life. We live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. If we were to turn away from you, Lord, Where will we go? 
deeper. You have the word of life. And it's that word that we need. So Holy Spirit, we pray, illumine our minds. Grant us understanding. Help us to hear. Help us to receive. And help us to do what you show us in your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jai Packer writes in Knowing God, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. We'll read that for us again. I believe that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. What do you think about the idea that prayer is the spiritual measure of a person? The idea that we are nothing more or nothing less than our prayer lives. I find it convicting. And if that's true of the Christian, might it also be true of the gathered church? That our congregations are spiritually measured by our prayer lives. Perhaps that ought to concern us. When we live in a day when prayer meetings have all but vanished from the Christian week of service to the Lord. The old divines used to call special seasons of prayer. Those special seasons have long given way to drought, haven't they? Concerts of prayer used to accompany the Lord's Supper, for example, but they have been replaced with individualistic quiet times sporadically had. I wonder if the Christian church, at least in the West and the United States, might not be more prayerless now than it has ever been. I wonder what the measure of the church is. What do you think? I realize that we have some words that are important to us, been important to us for the last 10, 20, 30 years, hyphenated words, thanks to John Piper. <laughs> words like gospel-centered, Christ-centered, word-centered. But sometimes I'm, I'm struck with the impression that people have sort of grasped the concept that we ought to be centered on certain things but we haven't yet grasped the practice. So that to be centered on it comes to sort of mean functionally that we're, we're kind of satisfied with being in the vicinity of something, but not actually on point. I wonder if that's true when it comes to our prayer lives. But if we think of our prayer lives as being word-centered, we are roughly in the general thematic area of what the word teaches, but not praying the word specifically itself. So what I want to do in the night, the burden of this talk tonight, is to urge a recovery of prayer 
by a recovery of praying the actual word of God. And I want to do that by going to a text of Scripture that illustrates that for us in the life of the early church. You have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do turn to Acts chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, you'll find that on page 912. Acts chapter 4, let me give you a little context. Uh, A couple of the apostles, Peter and John, just been taken to the Sanhedrin because they've been preaching that Jesus is raised from the dead. That kind of vexed the religious leaders. So verse 3, they arrested them, put them in custody, and then they, they, they severely treated them. They gathered the scribes and the rulers together, verse 5. Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and Hall, who were of the high priestly family. And they put them on trial. They treated them roughly, as I said. When we come down to verse 23, which is where our text will begin, uh, Peter and John have been released, and they are going back to the church. And verses 23 to 31 record for us a kind of prayer meeting that happened there. So look with me in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. If you're taking notes tonight, I want to hang our thoughts on four short points here from this text. Number one, I want us to encourage us to pray together. To pray together, verses 23 and 24. Number two, I want us to pray theologically. Pray theologically, verses 24 and 25. And then where we'll spend the bulk of our time, Lord willing, um, point number three, I want us to pray the Scripture and see this model of it here, verses 25 to 28. And then finally, I want us to pray expectantly, verses 29 to 31. Pray together, pray theologically, pray the Scripture, pray expectantly. See there in verses 23 and 24, and pray together. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Uh, Praying in the assembled church should promote at least two things, friendship and unity. 
warmth and togetherness. See there in verse 23, I love it says that they, they went to their friends. That's not a, a reference to sort of friends from junior high school, right? It's not talking about the guys who were part of the, the fishing lodge back in Nazareth somewhere. They refer to their brothers and sisters in the church. These are friends in the spirit of friendship that, that Jesus says he has now with his disciples. There's intimacy and warmth. There's loyalty and love and tenderness in this word. The church ought to be the community, the one community, where everyone in Christ can find a friend. We often tell ourselves that our churches are our families, but how often do we think of our churches and teach that our churches are also friendship networks? Our churches ought to be communities that, that cripple loneliness and isolation with love and transparency. And it's prayer together that helps us to do that. Helps us to communicate that, that warmth which thaws us from the world's cold mistreatment. That's what's happening here. They have taken a beating at the hands of the, the religious leaders and, and now they have come from that cold treatment into the warmth of spiritual fellowship. And we might infer a kind of basic theology of friendship from this text, can't we? That, that Christian friends and church members ought to be people you can talk to. You see there, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And then secondly, Christian friends and church members ought to be people who will immediately pray with us. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Which is where we see the second thing, unity. See, prayer as the gathered church ought to be something that melds our minds together. I'm going to geek out a little bit. I'm a Trekkie. I, I like all the Star Treks. don't like Star Wars. That's kind of corny. But Star Trek. Let's see who's listening. <laughs> I'm separating the sheep from the goats right now. So... <laughs> But Spock is that dude, isn't he, from Vulcan? You know, and, and every once in a while when they really needed some information from somebody and were having some difficulty to get it, he would do that Vulcan mind mail, right? Where he would just sort of join his mind with the mind of the person whose temple he was touching. Well, that's a silly illustration, but that's what's meant by this word together. It's the same word that Luke uses in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, to say they were on one accord or with one mind. It's the same thing that Paul exhorts the Philippian church to. When, when he tells them um, to, to be of one mind, to, to have the same love for one another, to, to be in full accord and, and of one mind. Twice he says it there. And this is what's happening with the church as the church Praise. So I wonder if you want more unity in your church, or more unity in your marriage, or more unity with your children. And I wonder if we've considered that one way of advancing that union is by prayer, talking together with God, sharing together our thoughts with God. And when we do that with God's Word, the binding power of prayer is magnified. In fact, the only thing that should bind our consciousness and our hearts, our minds, is the Word of God. 
Not, not our political affiliations, not our politics, not our culture, not our preferences, but God's word, bringing together God's people. And this intimate act of prayer is how we forge unity. So there's a simplicity here, isn't it? They listen and they prayed. And, and though this is not a gathered service of the church, a, a regular Sunday morning gathering, if you will, that simplicity can, in fact, be part of our gatherings. Prayer should not be so formal that it, that it inhibits bonding. It should be so familial that it strengthens bonding. And so the best context for praying the word is the covenant community, the household of God, the people of God gathered around the word. So pray together. But number two, pray theologically. Notice how the, the actual prayer begins here in verse 24. We, we see it where they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is just chock full of good theology. I mean, from this address, we can infer at least three things about the character and nature of God, which is shaping how they approach to God and, and things that are rooted and grounded in the Scripture. Number one, God's a ruler, sovereign Lord. The one to whom we pray is master of all. He rules and directs according to his good pleasure and will. He sits enthroned in the heavens, directing things according to his own counsel. And not only he's ruler, but he's also maker. Here they're quoting almost directly from Psalm 146, verse 6, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Calls to mind also Isaiah 37. We're pulling on the, the, the nature of God as creator, as the maker of all things, was pastorally used in the life of God's people, specifically when they suffered persecution and opposition. They would look beyond the control and power of their foes and look up to a God who was ruling over all things, including their suffering. And he speaks. It's a ruler and maker, but also a speaker. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. A good public prayer does good public theology. We want to address God accurately. Our prayer should tell the biblical truth about who God is and what he's like and how he acts in the world. Our, our prayers should, should, should be rehearsing the wondrous acts of God in creation and redemption. Whenever we speak to God and lead others in speaking to God in prayer, we want to rightly identify the God to whom we speak. It's going to be vital for understanding it. And so our prayer, we should pray theologically informed prayers, but, but we should pray also believing the theology that we pray. So good public prayer actually believes what we say to and about God. So if God is our ruler, then we should pray according to his rule. Matt Merker gave us a wonderful presentation of the regulative principle last night. 
taught us that our worship of God should be regulated by God's word. That, that means we should pray, number one, because God says in his word that we should pray. It's a command. But it also means that God's sovereign rule itself should be reflected in the content and manner of our prayers. It should be reflected in how we address him and in what we ask of him. This is how I think our Lord puts it. He says, if you ask anything in my name, or whatever you ask according to my will, that, that means God's rule should be reflected in what we ask of him. We should not only state the theology, but practice the theology as we pray. Or if God is maker and creator of all things, then we should pray keeping in mind the creator-creature distinction, shouldn't we? There should be awe and reverence in our approach to God. There should be humility in our hearts as we contemplate his greatness and how high above us he really is. I wonder if our minds have become dull to phrases like this, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. I wonder if that's become such common knowledge to us that we don't, we don't stand in awe of it. So we read the sentence as we're reading the Bible, and we don't think actively about how much power, how much wisdom, how much creativity God must possess in order to create everything there is using a single word. This is who we're talking to. A God with that much wisdom and power ought to have our attention in prayer, shouldn't he? We should pray as if God can do anything. Because he can. And if God is a speaker who spoke through David by the Holy Spirit, then we should pray what God has spoken as listeners. When we pray his word, we are not most fundamentally the ones speaking so that God can listen. Prayer is not like a Southern Seminary, 7 a.m. lecture that God is forced to attend and listen to if he wants to pass our exam of him. When we pray his word, we should do so listening to the word so that we might hear God speaking back to us. I mean, if God speaks in his word and we are speaking to God using his very word, then there is two-way communication happening. We are petitioning God, but God is speaking back to us by that very word. If we don't grasp that, is it any wonder that so many Christians are frustrated that they don't hear from God in prayer when so many Christians seem not to pray his word? So we want to pray theologically informed. We want to pray believing the theology. And we want to pray in sort of, we're talking about public prayer here, congregational prayer. We want to pray in a way that that gives understanding. So what's happening here in this verse, verse 24 and 25, we're not just heaping up titles and attributes without ever giving them any thought, or we shouldn't be. We should not pray through these truths so fast that they don't actually register to the people that we're praying with. So a couple quick little things here. Pray simple prayers. Notice that the word choices and the content in this address are simple. 
These are not long theological terms. There are no attempts to work out divine sovereignty and human responsibility and put a nice bow on that for your congregation. Instead, those truths are just simply stated as facts, not as puzzles. Keep the prayer simple in order to improve understanding, but also pray with pauses publicly. Pause between the phrases long enough that the mind can catch up with what's been said and make sense of it. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And by doing that, pray then with emphasis too. So when we pray the word, there ought to be something of a kind of exegetical prayer of the word. We ought to emphasize what the scripture emphasizes. So that same phrase, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I think there's a building to a crescendo in that. We pray the word, let's pray it exegetically that way and, and pray with wonder. Not performance, but genuine wonder. Because if the prayer is simple with pauses and appropriate emphasis, then something of the wonder of Scripture should come through in the prayer. I think as they pray this, they are amazed a little bit when you get to the phrase that says, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, I think there's a sense of wonder that God talked through David and, and inscribed his thoughts in human speech on parchment for us. There should be this kind of awe there. So simplicity and pauses and emphases and wonder should punctuate and communicate meaning so that the congregation praying together also understands together. So if you write your prayers or encourage others to write their prayers, then, then write prayers for the ear, not for the eye. Right? Your prayer will be heard, not read. The auditory experience is different than the visual when it comes to understanding. By, by looking at the page, we can take in more complexity, can track an argument. But in the ear, that's more difficult. So make your, simples, your sentences simple. Punctuate them with clarity. Write them for the ear so that people can understand. Which brings us to a third thing. We want to pray the scripture. Notice there it begins in verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And he quotes here from the second psalm. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's an amazing appropriation of Scripture in the prayer life of the church. It's all the more amazing 
because I, I, I gather that they pray this way, not having had time to go home and write a prayer, but on hearing the report from the apostles, without the advantage of opening scrolls. It's not like they, everybody had, you know, scrolls in their crib, right? You know, some folks were King James only scroll people and, you know, some folk with the ESV and some people had their, their scrolls kind of with their name etched on it. it. It wasn't like that at all. I mean, to hear the Word of God, you had to gather with the people of God for it to be read. And so, the sort of thinking of the, of the people is shaped by, as we heard the other night, the public reading of the Scripture, and that public reading and public teaching of the Scripture shaped also the prayer life of the people. So that when it was time to pray, they could pray Psalm 2, having heard it, perhaps having memorized it, and they can appropriate it in that way. But notice a few things here. Number one, notice the relationship between inspiration and prayer. Acts 4.24, Luke really gives us a wonderful and succinct doctrine of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. In, in narrative form, we're seeing what Paul preaches in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, where he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped or complete equipped for every good work. So we might say Scripture is profitable for prayer too and equips us for the good work of prayer. God speaks by His Spirit through His human servants to give us His divine Word. David was God's stenographer. The Bible is God's dictaphone. I mean, what, what I want us to see is that the saints prayed the actual words of God because they believed in the inspiration of Scripture. They prayed those words as listeners to the God who speaks in the Word. This is where we get our best inspiration for prayer. When I was a pastor in the Cayman Islands, I had the privilege of marrying a young man named Simon to his beloved Elizabeth. They had courted for a couple of years, long distance, and the big day had come, and we had celebrated their wedding, and we're at the reception, and people are doing all those toasts and things that people do at wedding receptions that keep you there way too long when it's Saturday and you've got to preach on Sunday. And, uh, but I'll never forget Simon's toast to his Elizabeth. He said, I've prayed, and my parents have prayed for many years for me to find a wife. And when I consider what God has given me in you, I realized that my prayers were weak and uninspired. I'm writing on the napkin, that's good. <laughs> it's like, baby, you go hear that again. <laughs> that's real good. <laughs> when, when we consider what God has given us in the Word, our best human words are weak and uninspired. The best inspiration, the best treasure for prayer is the treasure of God's Word itself. And if we believe the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God, then the Word of God should inspire our prayers. So, 
See there that connection between their prayer and inspiration, but see the connection between the gospel and prayer. In this same text, this quotation of Psalm 2 makes it clear that Jesus is the anointed one who's referred there uh, to the last word in that quotation. The psalm divides the, the, the sinful leaders and the sinful nations over against God and his chosen one. It's, it's clear when you come to verse 27, uh, they understand that, that Herod is among the sinful leaders, but so also is gen, the Gentiles and the Israelites who put to death the Messiah. And so the whole world, not just in the days that David penned that psalm, but the whole world over the arc of redemptive history now is divided between those who oppose God and his chosen one and those who believe God and receive his Messiah. Striking how that basic gospel division just comes right into their consciousness through the word of God. And as I said, that division exists today. There are only two groups of people in the world among all the diversity of humankind. There are those who know God and have trusted in Christ and received forgiveness of their sins and been declared justified before God, not by works that they do, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his resurrection are, are, are provided eternal life and, and righteousness and the hope of glory to come. And there are then those who reject Christ and are yet in their sins. And the wrath of God abides on them. And that day that is appointed for judgment is fast approaching them. And apart from Christ, will rage and gnash their teeth, but come to nothing against the holy, omnipotent God dedicated to his righteousness. And you may be here tonight and you've not crossed the line. You've not switched sides. Maybe even now the Lord is making you aware that there's something that's been in your heart and life that has been opposed to him. I know we're among religious folks at a religious conference and you've mastered the religion thing, but you've not gladly called Christ Lord. Even now the offer of eternal life is extended to you to repent of your sins to believe in Christ, to flee rebellion and join the side of God and his anointed one, trusting Jesus alone for your salvation. And the promise to you is God will forgive you and God will cleanse you and God will even adopt you into his family. And by his spirit, God will unite you to his son, never to be parted again. And God has prepared a place for you in his kingdom where there's glory and pleasure forevermore in his presence. Today's the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Believe in Christ. And so their prayers are shaped by some basic gospel understanding. And the gospel comes forward in these prayers in new and rich ways because they are rehearsing the drama of God's redemptive history. But there's a third thing here. Notice the relationship between suffering and prayer as they pray God's word. I mean, one reason to pray the scripture is that the scripture helps us interpret our experience. 
They've just been oppressed and beaten. They've come and told their friends. They've gone into this prayer meeting. And now as they pray Psalm 2, they recognize that Psalm 2, verse 27, 28, explains what's happening to them in that day. Nothing quite as healing as getting a glimpse that God's in control when you're suffering. I've often had the privilege of counseling Christian saints, very often a Christian can get stuck in some experience of pain or longing that we have. Perhaps it's a parent uh, that's lost their child. Maybe it's a young woman or a young man who really wishes to be married or could it be an employee faced with a layoff. Uh, Whatever the case, when, when we hurt we tend to project from our hurt upward toward God. We take the suggestions of our pain and interpret them as fact and then question the character or the plans of God. We say things like, if God is good, then why did he take my son? Why does God deny me the spouse and family I I really want to have? Those are good things, aren't they? Is God punishing me for this or that? So not surprisingly, people who allow their experience of pain and suffering to shape their understanding of God eventually find it difficult to pray to God. That's where praying the scriptures in our time of gathered worship helps us. Because when we pray the scripture, we allow the scripture to define and interpret our experience rather than the other way around. As I said, the the apostles have just suffered at the hands of the Sanhedrin. They could commiserate with the church about how much they've suffered, and they could allow themselves to think God has forgotten us. Instead, they pray Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 helps them interpret their suffering in light of God's plan of redemption. Notice how they start with the scripture in verses 25 and 26. Then notice how they then move to their experiences in verses 27 and 28. What what do they conclude in verse 28 based on the scripture? It's remarkable, isn't it? God is doing whatever his hand and his plan has predestined to take place. In other words, they come to conclude nothing has happened to them except what God the ruler determined ahead of time. See, beginning with Scripture helped them to interpret their situation. Now, there's some unique things in this text, but I think the pattern holds true. It's better to interpret our situation in light of God's Word than to interpret God or His Word in light of our situations. And when we do this interpretive work in our times of gathered prayer, we shape the thinking of the entire congregation. We lead the whole body with one mind in the process of listening to God as we pray his word and as he interprets us. Now notice one last thing about their prayer here, the body of their prayer, verses 29 to 30. See the connection. See how they then sort of, how this influences their petition in the prayer. Verse 29, 30, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal 
And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, what's remarkable about this petition is how little concerned with the self the Christians are. They entrusted the threats of their opponents to God. That's the first request there. You see, now, Lord, look upon their threats. Vengeance is the Lord's. The Lord is our victory. The Lord fights our battles. We're going to... Lord, we're just going to hand that over to you. It's good when you can delegate to God. (laughs) He never fails. Right? What they ask for, did you see that? Is boldness to continue to speaking the word of God. Notice how praying the scripture has, in fact, made them very gospel-minded as saints. They would leave the miraculous to God. Uh, You know, confirm your word by healings and signs and miracles done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what they wanted for themselves was faithfulness as stewards to the message of God, that they might preach with boldness. It might not be too much to say that you can sum the book of Acts up with that phrase preaching with boldness. Almost every time we see the Holy Spirit fill the saints, not very long after that, this is what you hear. And they preach with boldness. And they proclaim the word of God with boldness. And and that's what they sought here in this prayer. And and that, that request in the midst of suffering and uncertainty and opposition, that request reveals a very gospel or evangelistic spirit. And doesn't that make sense? A gospel or evangelistic spirit is the natural result of recognizing that you're living in the fulfillment and continuation of God's plan of redemption as it's revealed in his word. If we consistently pray God's word, then we're likely to petition God for what's in the word rather than what's in the world. Put it another way, if we want a more spiritually minded church, then we ought to publicly pray God's word together. Which brings us to our last thing. We should pray expectantly. We should pray expectantly. Notice the the three effects in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with Bonus. I love this. I love this. They prayed. God showed up. God showed up in response to their prayers. The place was shaken. That's not an everyday occurrence. It's a unique period in history, and I don't think this event is normative. But I do think God is capable, and I do think we want to be shaken more than we are if we're longing for Christ. Really, more fundamentally, we don't want the Lord to shake the earth or to shake the building that we're in. We want the Lord to shake our hearts, don't we? Shake off the coldness, to shake off the clay, to shake off the the sort of um, stuckness that sometimes creep into the Christian soul. Lord, shake us, revive us, stir us, fill us with zeal, fill us with your spirit that we might burn again for the glory and greatness of your name. And next, the 
The next result is normative. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We, we ought to seek the Spirit's filling and to be controlled by Him. We, we ought to want that for the entire church. Notice this. They were all filled. This wasn't just an experience that Bob Coughlin had. <laughs> this is God's gift of Himself to His people for their enjoyment. This is God's gift of himself to his people for their enjoyment. Piper is right. God is the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we get God. And he becomes ours and we become his. And there's this wedding that happens between us. There's this communion that happens between us. And, and we have a down payment of that right now, an earnest, a guarantee in the dwelling and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And, and we have an experience, a foretaste of that right now in the participation of the Spirit, in fellowship with him. It is not to be feared but desired. It is to know God and to be known by God to commune with him and receive power to do his work. And notice the final thing. They receive what they asked for. The Spirit gave them boldness to speak the word of God. I think that's likely a prayer God will always answer. He left us in the world to do exactly that, to speak boldly for him. Praying the scripture effectively as Augustine put it, is to say, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command us to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And grant us by your spirit, the filling and the power of your spirit, to do so boldly. So let's end where we began. J.I. Packer writes, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. I wonder if the church's weakness has much more to do with prayerlessness and a failure to pray the word than we know. And here's my question. Why should we expect boldness to speak the word of God when we're talking to men if we don't have humility to pray the word of God when we're talking with God? Why should we expect boldness when speaking to men with our own words when we haven't humbled ourselves often enough to pray God's word when we're speaking to him? Put it another way, if our words are so clever that we should use them in conversation with God, Aren't we likely to think our word should be trusted when we talk with men? To pray the word of God is fundamentally to abandon ourselves, to abandon delusions of wisdom and eloquence, to abandon the centering of ourselves in our own experience, in our own lives. It is to flee from ourselves that God might be made central that his wisdom might be received through his word and that we now would be shaped by that word to go and be all that God calls us to go and be. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we ask you tonight to teach us to pray. Teach us to pray with reverence to the Father. Teach us to pray with the words of Scripture that we might know our biblical duty. Teach us to pray in faith that mountains might be moved. Lord, teach us to pray. And as we pray, give us more of yourself. Let us bask in your presence. Let us bring all that we feel and all that we experience to you, our holy, saving God. And let us receive you be blessed to receive you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.